standard issue for all women. Welcome to the Sunday Chops. Jen here to tell you about this week's episode. This week I'm chatting to journalist and author Nell Frizzell about her new book, Holding the Baby, Milk, Sweat and Tears from the Frontline of Motherhood. The book is a part memoir, part manifesto, looking at parenting and why we treat it as a sort of lifestyle choice rather than a shared cultural responsibility, spoiler alert, necessary for the progression of humanity. We chat about mental health, maternal rage, relationships and sleep deprivation and how to fix a system that is not working for anyone. It's worth mentioning that this episode does end rather abruptly. It's okay, we didn't fall out or anything like that. We just chatted for so long that my memory card was full and it cut out. So what I have to tell you is that Nell has a website, nellfrizzell.com. If you are interested in finding out more about her work, more about her books and events around the launch of the book. I loved the book. I think it's brilliant. It's funny. It's warm. It makes you feel seen as a parent. Let me tell you. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed chatting to her. I am joined by journalist and author Nell Frizzell, who's here today to talk to me about her new book, Holding the Baby. Nell, hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Yeah, holding the baby. I wanted to call it the tracksuit years, the follow-up <laughs> to the panic years, the tracksuit years where everything goes to elasticated waistbands and sort of being lightly smeared in peanut butter. But they went for holding the baby instead, which is good. It's a good title. People pick it up. Are you still in your tracksuit bottoms? I am. I'm literally wearing my pyjama bottoms as <laughs> I speak to you. I'm not fully dressed yet. I put a jumper on so it looks like I'm not wearing my pyjamas, but now I am. Uh, well, I'm washed, but I, I got washed and then put on clean like tracksuit bottoms and pyjama tops. So I think that evens out. Do you know what? I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, but I'm, I'm 40 now, so um, why not? I have been a glasses wearer my entire adult life, right? I've got terrible, mm. terrible eyesight and I always used to wear contact lenses. And then the pandemic hit and I was just a bit like, well, what am I buying contact lenses for? And then I was like, do you know what? They hurt, don't they? Like they do, they irritate my eyes. I can't mm-hmm. really be bothered. Who am I actually doing this for? Because I used to feel like not very attractive in my glasses, right? I just, right, just okay. used to make me feel like not very, you know, I never would have gone on a date in glasses oh, for interesting. example okay and then i was just like would i really want to go like, like be in a relationship with a man who found me less attractive because i was wearing glasses <laughs> anyway we're digressing a bit here but yeah i basically i'm picking comfort these days is what i'm saying yeah but quite right i think there's a winnowing process definitely where you have to you have to be honest about who you are and it, hopefully it doesn't take until you're 40 where you can say like this is the package you're either taking this home or you're not <laughs> Nell. Yes. You know, it's wrong to have favourites, but you are one of my favourite interviewees because I love what you write about. So I would like you to tell us about your new book, please. Holding the Baby is the book that I wanted to write all along. And it was the book I was sort of pitching from the beginning. I said, when I think my son was about six months old, I want to write a book about the questions you're not allowed to ask as a parent. I want to write about all the shameful stuff, the tricky stuff, the difficult, embarrassing, gross, unspoken, ignored, dismissed stuff, because this is the most seismic, most interesting thing that's ever happened in my life. And it's also the most universal human experience I've ever had. And I was delighted to write The Panic Years and I wrote another novel that I love, but this is the book that I really wanted to write. And it's about how we need to fix early parenting in a nutshell and how my first sort of 
year and a half, two years of being a mother suddenly opened my eyes to all the systematic injustices that still exist in our community and actually how solving them wouldn't just help new parents, it would help everyone. Like, you know, if we can fix accessibility, housing, workplace culture, universal basic income, all of that, if we can fix those things, food, access to green space, it will help everybody, apart from a tiny minority of insanely wealthy people. And actually, fuck them, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And so what I wanted to do was to also point out that I find it really interesting that we have one term for parent or one term for mother. Mm. We have lots of terms for the child. So they're a newborn, they're a baby, they're a toddler, they're a young kid, they're whatever. But you are just seen as like blanket one person, all those things. And it's actually really different. Like being a breastfeeding parent to a newborn is really different and in no ways harder or easier than being a non-breastfeeding parent to a three-year-old and the fact that we haven't even bothered to put the nuance into the names that we give those roles those jobs those responsibilities just shows us for how long and how widely we have basically ignored it as an extremely essential human endeavor like we haven't even got the vocabulary to kind of give it the the depth and width that it has So I wanted to kind of pick that apart and say, we talk about the fourth trimester, Mm. which is that this theory that, you know, because of our neat little pelvises and ginormous brains, we're born a bit too early. And so for the first three months, a baby is entirely reliant on its primary caregiver for survival. And I just want to say that's not a trimester. That's not three months. That's months, if not years of your life. And we cannot expect people to be doing that work, that fundamental, essential, incredibly important, challenging, exciting work without the support of their community, their nation, their politicians, their business leaders, their employees, all of us. Like We all have to see this as a collective responsibility and we all need to support parents and families in whatever shape they come to do that work. Because if we don't do that work, nothing else happens. It's so obvious and like amazing organizations like pregnant then screwed have been saying this for years Mm. but without childcare, without parenting without the raising of babies there is no politics economy there's no sport there's no culture there's no housing there's no construction there's no farming nothing else happens without this happening so can we please put a bit more time and attention and resources behind how we do this it's fucking obvious but also it's funny like the book is meant to be funny there's like hilarious illustrations by my friend Becky Barnacote who people will know she does stuff for the New Yorker and the New Statesman and Grazia and stuff and then there's like silly little chapters about for example those whatsapp groups are you in the whatsapp groups they're like antenatal nursery ones where it's just everyone saying does this look normal am I normal should I do so should I be panicking you know and then the recipe for the kind of concrete that emerges around a baby's chins or should I buy a self-swimming robotic hammock for 149.99 all of that stuff so it's interjected with sort of the silly light-hearted stuff but really it's a political book it's a manifesto it's a memoir it's me screaming into the faces of the kind of pale male stale ideology that having a baby is a lifestyle choice and it's an individual choice and you just get on with it it's not it's not (laughs) I mean, that brings me to one of the first things that I want to talk about. And it is the first thing that you write about in the book, which is about sleep and sleep yes. deprivation. 
I think people think that you have a baby and it's sort of like, you know, it doesn't sleep for a little bit and then it does and then it's all all right. But like, certainly my daughter's all, you know, she's coming up for three. And this week, apart from last night, she's woken me up every night at least once for like Mm -hmm. at least an hour. And Mm -hmm. it's tough. Like, you know, I've gotten to the point where this morning I was just like to my mum, what did you, sorry, what did you just say to me? Like, two minutes ago like I can't actually you know it 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 is really tough and we know that sleep is bad but I think we think it this bit ends a lot quicker and the thing I read said that the average parent doesn't regain like their their normal amount of sleep until the child is six which (laughs) I did not fucking sign up for frankly but anyway (laughs) sleep deprivation there's a reason why it's a form of torture scientifically speaking as you have illustrated in your book like it, this is bad fucking news it it gets treated i think a little bit like well you had a kid so you know absolutely right there's this like a real shouldering the burden onto the one person who is really least capable of dealing with it which is the person who's confronting like probably some level of repair after birth and some the like daily logistics of raising a child and also probably the person that's waking up most and you're told to just get on with it. I would argue and I do argue that it's also this is a feminist issue because the way we treat sleep deprivation in men is still very different to the way we treat sleep deprivation in women and I mean people who are socialised and identify as those two things. Like in male-led areas for example finance sport journalism those places if you're up all night because you are like running a race or because you've been trading with japan or because you've got a deadline you're kind of lionized you're seen as a bit of a legend it's really like oh my god did you hear gary he was up for four nights in a row bringing in that deal but if you're a nurse if you're a parent if you are a carer all areas largely uh, still populated by majority women we don't care. We ignore it. We treat it as your sort of lot. We assume that you can just deal with it. No one's patting you on the back. No one's suggesting you get promotion. No one's even stepping in to help. Or rarely they do. So there is a gendered element to this. I was delighted when I discovered that the US Navy, there was such a toxic culture about you'll sleep when you're dead. They were losing not just people, but millions of pounds, which is what they really care about to accidents, human error, because people were so tired. And so they introduced this directive that people in the American Navy had to have six and a half hours of sleep and then access to another half hour or an hour nap. Otherwise, it was, here's a phrase for you, undue risk to life. Wow. I hadn't sniffed six and a half hours of sleep for two, three years, Mm -hmm. you know. And I remember thinking, if I was in charge of, like, machinery in a factory... Or if I was in charge of a lorry, I wouldn't be allowed to do this. But I'm in charge of a person. I'm in charge of a tiny infant. There's no one else here to keep them alive. And we're just accepting that. We just assume that that's like the best or only way we can manage this. Of course it isn't. It's It doesn't need to be this way. And I think the whole book could have been called It Doesn't Need to Be This Way. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically me looking at that. Like, why do we leave a parent you know mother father adopted parent whoever at home sleep deprived for months on end without support it's just wild of course there are accidents and of course there are horrible consequences to that and you know people send me some of them are really funny like Mm. you 
try to make a phone call on your nappy or you wash your phone or you accidentally turn up at a restaurant asking for a baked potato at nine in the morning because you haven't slept all night. All of that stuff is funny. But there's also really dark stories in there of people hallucinating, people like being convinced that their child has died, people trying to breastfeed a pillow upside down, you know, things that show you that we're out of control. Do I have a solution for sleep deprivation? Yeah, mandatory shared parental leave, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that hard. Flexible working, working from home unless there's a specific need for you to do otherwise. Maybe we could let access to things like night nurses not just be the preserve of the rich why you know you have it in places like the netherlands you'll have a i can't remember the dutch word but you'll have a sort of postnatal nurse who comes around to your house and they will look after the baby while you sleep for an hour or two for like weeks after you give birth we could do that we have the money to do that but we choose not to do that because we don't value this work and it makes me so angry and tired it makes me so fucking tired well, that's the thing, isn't it? On top of everything else, you've got the mental load of all of the bullshit to yeah. knock you out as well. Linked to that, you've written a chapter about loneliness as well in sort of new parents who you're left with like, you know, this tiny human to be responsible for. You've had no sleep. It's all, you know, it's it's hard work. It's an absolutely shocking statistic in the book that in new parents... 80% felt loneliness at some point and 40% said that they often or always felt lonely. This is a huge problem, right? Yeah. And Britain has always had a very high level of self-reported loneliness. We were called the loneliness capital of Europe for years. So there's obviously something systematically wrong here. It's not just that being a parent makes you lonely. It's that we allow loneliness to creep in through all areas of society. But... New parents are particularly susceptible to it. And I have to say, hands up here, Jen, like I'm not a single parent. So when I talk about loneliness, that's completely different to your experience of Mm. loneliness. Like I was lonely with an absent partner. I don't know what it's like to be doing that on your own from the off and like how how loneliness manifests in that scenario. Or if you're like, if you have a co-parent who you're not in a relationship with or whatever, like there's various forms of it. But I've come to think of loneliness as the more I think about it, why was I lonely? It wasn't just that I was on my own because, haha, you're never you know, on your own. Mm. It's, I think, losing your sense of self. You know, in the book, I use this phrase, the partial eclipse. I want to call it the Paris eclipse, which is like the, what you say after birth, but that was too wordy. So the partial eclipse, where it feels like who you are, the light that you create is now basically just shining entirely into your child. And there's a little rim of light around the edge that some people can see but you basically feel quite overlooked by wider culture society the people who used to know you the people that you just walk through the world with can't really see you for at the moment and that's a very lonely feeling but also I don't know if you'd agree with this but I felt so much judgment about how I was parenting and that can be quite a lonely thing as well. That I remember thinking, am I the only one who wants to like throw him at the wall? Oh my God, maybe I'm a terrible parent. Am I the only person who thinks I might have made a mistake here? Am I the only one who ever imagines just pushing their buggy into a river and what I'd do? So I, am I the only one who thinks about death all the time? Am I the only one who cries when I just think about my own mother? And that, I'm not talking about the symptoms of mental illness here. I'm talking about the inability to communicate how you feel to others for fear of being judged. I think that's really heavy in those first few months and years of being a parent Mm. because 
we do all have opinions about how you have to raise children. And so I think now my advice for people who are experiencing loneliness, particularly postpartum loneliness, is to tell people, mm. like just like lift up the metaphorical T-shirt of your feelings and show your soft underbelly and say like, ow, this hurts. I'm feeling lonely and dislocated. I haven't been able to read a book. I haven't been able to have an, finish a sentence. I haven't been able to smell my own skin for three weeks and I feel weird. Because what that is, is intimacy. You're allowing the other person to meet you in that space. And that's the opposite of loneliness. Like intimacy, empathy, honesty is how you abolish loneliness. It's not necessarily going to groups, although they're great if you have the means to get to them. It doesn't necessarily mean going to baby cinema and museums. Although, again, I would highly advise that you get out into a public space because it's yours. You belong there. You've earned the right to be there. It's more about, I think, being honest about what that experience is like and not feeling that you are alone and weird in how you're reacting to it. Interestingly, the brilliant Carrie Ad Lloyd said to me that she found the experience of having her first child like grief. Yeah. And I think that that's very accurate. It's kind of like everything changes but everything stays the same and the world goes mm. on and it continues and continues and continues but you are fundamentally changed and no one else can kind of see it yeah do you see what I mean that's really interesting yeah I would say also and I've heard Carrie Ad talk about how for lots of people lockdown felt quite griefy mm. and I remember my son was a year and a half old when we went into lockdown maybe a little bit older and I had a really strong feeling like oh this is familiar like this is really familiar that I'm standing at the window holding a fractious child looking out into the street thinking where is the world I'm behind Tupperware it felt that like that mm. was a very for me very lockdowny kind of feeling those early bits and uh, you know I would say here in the book I talked to um, a woman from the Institute for Health Visitors and I talked to a perinatal psychotherapist and there is support there what we've accidentally done, I think, is we have ring fence support for very severe cases, people who are really struggling, mm. but we haven't necessarily opened up our threshold to people who are experiencing what I would call like a moderate amount of mental ill health, <laughs> you know, like the sort of mm. the normal level of those things. And maybe all that we need to do is to say, this is what will probably happen to you. You know, we talk about loneliness, depression, anxiety as like a worst case scenario. Like if you're unlucky, this might happen to you. And I'd kind of like to say you're probably going to experience yeah. some of this. So building your contingencies now and your contingencies can be as simple as on a Tuesday, make sure you go to a laundrette that is a bus journey away. So you have to leave the house and you mm. have to see people and you have to interact in the world or Ask your health visitor to come to your house in the afternoon because you know they're particularly dark times for you. Make sure you're kind of meeting it head on rather than hoping it won't land because it will, you know, those things do come knocking at your door. Josie Long said to me, something always fucks you in the end. And I think that's true. Like it might be pregnancy, it might be birth, it might be something in the newborn stage, but something's going to get you. So maybe build up your resilience to that. I now look back and think I'm really glad that I did both to keep my loneliness at bay and my sort of mental equilibrium. I went to loads of groups. I was really lucky. My baby wasn't small during a lockdown and I had 
the means I'm non-disabled so I could walk to groups and I had money to get the bus and I you know I was very lucky in those things that I was able to go to groups and when else are you going to have those times when you're sitting in a children's centre between like a lawyer with a shaved head and a woman in a hijab who's had three children and then you're sitting across the, from like a Brazilian guy who's uh, got twins and you're all in the same space mm. and you're all meeting each other on a level. It was delightful. It was joyful. And, you know, I sang enough of Wine the Bobbin Up to last yeah. me yeah. a lifetime. And, you know, I cut up enough kiwi fruit to last me a lifetime. But I was also in the world. And I, you know, I think when you're working or you're not necessarily in the public world, what, what Sadie Smith calls in the commons, like, you're not in there unless you unless you find it, unless you reach out for it. And and children's centres, which have obviously all been closed by the Tories, stay in place, rhyme times at libraries. Like I loved going to them because I loved being around my people. Mm. And I, you know, I used to call them the daytime people. And they're not just parents. It's also people who are retired and people with chronic illnesses and people who have caring responsibilities. We're all around. Like we're we're fucking everywhere. We're in libraries, park benches, in cafes, museums, on buses. But we just, we're ignored. We're so ignored by the quote unquote economically active people. One of the things that interests me that you wrote about was that you suddenly become like really aware of death, right? And I found this very much that after I had Lyra, the idea of dying, like, you know, it's obviously not a particularly nice one, but, you know... <laughs> It's coming for us all, sadly. But there's a point when the idea of dying, like the worst thing is, you know, the idea of not being here anymore. And very yeah. quickly that switches to the idea of them being without you becomes yeah. like th the worst thing, which became like something that, you know, I still do think about quite a lot, if I'm honest. But also... Of course you do. These intrusive thoughts that we have about also, you know, the terrible things that might happen to them. I remember I used to stand at the side of a road and think, like, what if what if I let go and the buggy, like, yeah. rolled into the road? Or, like, or what if... And they become, like, quite elaborate. Like, what if I tripped over that knife on the side? What if I tripped over and knocked the knife and the knife went up in the air and, like, landed on my child? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. really quite bonkers things. But it's sort of like you were saying before, I then sort of said to my my mum WhatsApp group, like, is anyone else feeling a bit like they might just like, accidentally kill their child? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that's normal. Don't worry about it. And you're like, it is all right, normal. okay. It is completely normal. And it's also <clears throat> really good protective work by your psyche. And I think this is something that can be misunderstood and can be quite frightening. In my case... I used to, in the book, I think I described walking along under a tree with my son in a sling, like held against my chest and I couldn't feel him breathing, which is terrifying anyway. Mm. And, you, and like, weirdly, you expect yourself to just exist in a state of that level of terror where from second to second, you're not sure if your child is breathing. That's a huge load on you psychologically. So then, of course, you're more vulnerable, as I was, when you're walking under a tree and it's a slightly windy day, just picturing a branch from that tree yeah. landing and smashing your child's skull in. Of course you do, because you're already in a state of terror. You're in a, already in a state of, like, raised awareness and anxiety. Your cortisol is through the roof. Your adrenaline is massive because you're sleep-deprived. Like, hormonally and chemically, there are reasons for this, too. But also, 
And this is a tricky thing to talk about because I'm not a psychologist. But as far as I understand it, when you're picturing doing things like not just the accidental deaths, but you're picturing doing things like just crushing your child's face into the floor. It's because you need to like build up the strength in your brain to deal with the level of stress and anxiety and fear you're in. Like you you need to confront the very seriousness of your responsibility, the survival of your child, the fact that at times that's going to feel impossible and you won't feel like you're coping. And so when you have those intrusive thoughts, it's almost like your brain saying, but look, you have coped. You've coped every day. You've never done this. This is the thing that you could be doing and you never have. I remember feeling great relief when I realised I think about my child dying every day Mm. and he hasn't, and I haven't caused it to happen either. Like, well done me. <laughs> I've not and done he's it. he's at school now, and, so, you know, that's, that's now. a good run you've had. And and also it's the reality. Like, mm. I, I've i never been a heart surgeon. I don't know what that's like. But I have held a screaming child with a huge temperature, and I've not known if they're going to live or die. And that is a fairly unremarkable part of parenting mm. you know but but we're not necessarily trained for it and we're not necessarily ready for it when it happens but we largely do all cope with it but i would like there to be more sort of public acknowledgement of what that's like it's really quite scary to live in a state of fight or flight or freeze and in a state of like complete responsibility for a helpless non-verbal infant for years at a time it's a lot psychologically so of course your brain does these little twists where you imagine like you say a knife falling off the sideboard or you know uh, letting go of a buggy on a hill because you're constantly fighting the fear that the worst might happen So is that linked to that kind of psychological response? Because another thing you write about is maternal rage, and you, uh, uh-huh. you which is a fascinating subject, which you quote Saima Mir, mm. who I spoke to for the podcast a, a while ago about the chapter in, in that book. The best, most awful job. And, you know, there is an actual scientific reason behind it, isn't there, which you write about in the book. I don't know, one of the things about that chapter that I found really interesting is that people have been writing about maternal rage since, like, at least the 60s, right? But it's still really shocking to people, the idea. Jen, people have been writing about maternal rage since Medea ate her kids mm. in the Greek myths. Like, it's been there Fair. for yeah. thousands of years. But we don't like to accept that it happens. Like, we are afraid of it. Because if you exist in a patriarchal society where women have to take on all of caring, you can't admit that sometimes women feel rage. And like so that that sort of the old system where women are nurturing caregivings, angels of the house that stay at home and coo after their babies, therefore can be denied the right to vote and work and own land. That is really shaken if you say, oh, but this woman wants to scream, rip the lintels from the door and set herself on fire. It's very confronting because we have to admit that women, just like men, experience the whole range of fury and joy and everything else in between. And we all have to cope with it. But it's you know, actively it's... socialised out of us as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like someone said to me once, I think it was Helen Russell. So men are socialised to only feel rage. They're not allowed to experience yep. other emotions, but we're not allowed to feel rage. And so quite often we misinterpret 
rage for upset. So a lot of the time, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of it now, and a lot of the time when I want to cry, it's out of frustration. It's not actually, or it's out of anger. It's not actually out of upset, but I don't have the tools or, or, or the yeah. language or whatever to kind of express it. I think I, the reason I find maternal rage so endlessly fascinating is because genuinely, until I had a baby, I would have told you that I don't really feel anger. I would mm. have said, oh, I'm just not, it's just not one of my things. I don't, I'm not really an angry person. I get upset and I get depressed, and I, but I, I just don't really feel anger. Mm. And now I snap to anger so quickly. The other day, I went for a swim with some friends and we were having a fire outside and the wood had some sap in that meant it was like popping. And then suddenly this whole fire exploded all over all of us. We were outside. Yeah. Fuck is one response. My first reaction was, oh, for fuck's sake. Like I was instantly angry with the fire, not worried that I was on fire, not scared for my friends, not rushing to help. I was just cross I was cross that that had happened and I thought this is something that has happened since I've become a parent that I snapped to being angry and frustrated I'm much angrier so fast I'm so angry it's obviously a fear response but sometimes it it actually takes the place of fear that I will be angry like if my son were to fall over and start bleeding I might feel angry before I'm concerned because I've just been so angry for so long and obviously I don't listeners I don't shout at him if he bleeds but I feel it and then I have to sort of think oh no Nell this is like this is a stress response this feels like a threat your child is bleeding your mammalian brain sees that sees a threat you respond with anger like that's what you do and then you have to kind of override that and amazingly we do all have these super sophisticated brains that can override anger and can override fear to then react proportionately and kindly and calmly but I'm also angry not just with the like the threat like if a child pokes you in the face or bites your nipple or screams in your ear you interpret that as the threat to safety Mm. and it will make you angry but I'm also angry and this is what Simon Mir talks about in her chapter as well I'm angry with the whole state of this I'm angry that I'm expected to do this for £80 a week. I'm angry that I couldn't afford my rent, even though I was working, my partner was working full time. I'm angry that like, you have to be on a waiting list for two years just to get your child into nursery. Like, I'm already angry because I have been pushed up against the systematic injustices of the British society. And then on top of that, someone is trying to like shove a biro in my eye. So like, of course I'm cross. <laughs> of course I'm really angry. And yeah, I think when there's a sort of stereotype that you see a mum in a supermarket screaming at her kid and everyone goes, oh my God, like, <gasps> she's more, she's that poor child, or I should step in. And it's like, but actually, maybe the fact that she's screaming in the supermarket is okay because she's in public, she's letting go, she's not harming herself or that child, she's, this is a valve. Like, I, I think shouting, this is controversial, I think shouting gets a bad rep. Because I think shouting is actually probably one of the safest ways to release what is sometimes an overwhelming and terrifying anger. Like, I think if you're shouting, you're not doing the other things that are worse. It's hard, isn't it? Like, I I genuinely think, and this does sound like a wanky thing to say, but it is genuinely hard. Like, it is laborious to love someone or something. (laughs) As much as you love your children, it is. And and, and yes. that can also make you a little bit resentful, I think. Yep, yep. 
absolutely. And like that maternal ambivalence, that phrase by Rosita Parker, like the strength of feelings you have towards a child. And it doesn't have to be a child that you've given birth to. It's just a child that you love and raise. Like the strength of that feeling also brings with it a strength of other feelings. And Mm -hmm. we can't just pick one and pretend the others don't happen because of course they do it's like everything has been turned up to 10 and so you will feel rage beyond anything you've known you'll feel fear beyond anything you've known you'll feel joy you know hopefully beyond anything you've ever known responsibility like passion all of that stuff it all just becomes very amplified not forever but for a while I'm always like, it's just a phase, it's just a phase, and then the next bit will be another phase. Can I tell you, I was so cross when I realised that my son had all his teeth because I couldn't say that he was just teething anymore. (laughs) I want to talk about another source of potential rage, if that's okay. So I went into parenthood without a partner, and Mm. as much as this undeniably has its challenges, I was actually so relieved when I heard my other friends talking, to not have to factor in like a third person's needs, emotional, physical, whatever, among the rest of the chaos. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the burden of or on, I suppose, either way, relationships. Oh, let's dig into this. Because yeah, I'm now at a stage where three or I'd say three women that I'm very close to are choosing to have children on their own. And we have this conversation a lot. And like all power to them, it's brilliant. We talk about the challenges of having a partner and the challenges of not having a partner. And I'm not in a position to say because I've not done both. But it strikes me as different challenges. Like I did have someone to hand a baby to at two in the morning when I felt I couldn't cope but sometimes that had to be my mum sometimes that mm. couldn't be my partner he couldn't do it and that like the, the resentment the mismatch of um, attitudes and approaches the constant compromise the feeling of rejection being touched out like there's so much to it that I would say if you're in a relationship and you're thinking of having a kid to bring you together <laughs> don't do it <laughs> Oh my God, (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) And if you have a child and you're looking at your partner thinking, I'm not sure this is working, you might be right. I'm not going to for a moment say that you're wrong, but that is also because you are undergoing together one of the greatest challenges a relationship can face. Me and my partner had to go to couples counselling because I wanted another baby and he didn't. And that's a really tricky thing to navigate I think within a relationship because it throws into question everything about how you're experiencing parenthood and what you think love is and like what you want from your future and all of that so that was really and that is really tricky I also think that there is a weird thing when you have a child with someone that you're in a relationship with where you are having a constant feedback of that other person manifested in your child And like, let's not ignore that that's quite a big thing, that when they behave in a way that your partner does, that's different to the way that you Mm. do, it's a confrontation with the fact that someone else's DNA is existing with your DNA for the rest of their life. And that's so if I walk into a park and there's a group of people and they're all like shouting and there's a drumbeat, I'm like, ooh, and I'll walk over to it. And my son and my partner would walk in the opposite direction. 
And I have to now not only manage the fact that I'm married to a man who doesn't want the same things I do. I also have to manage the fact that I have grown a man who doesn't want the same things I want to. (laughs) And so that's like a challenge on the relationship because I think, oh, but they're not like me and they're like you. And do I like you? Like, do I want to have someone like you in my life forever? And then all the obvious things, sleep deprivation and having like sex after if you've had a vaginal birth or a cesarean or every, you know, if you're. Or if you just feel like a bit gross because you haven't slept forever and like yeah. everything's leaking and your body doesn't look like it used to and whatever. Yeah. Like it is normal. You, you smell to... of just general flan. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be very sexy. Saying that, I was horny as a mule after having a baby. And I find that like a funny thing to talk about with people because I wanted to have sex two weeks after I'd given birth. Like I was, I know, isn't that weird? And it's so odd. Like, and I'm not, I don't say this as anything like an aspirational thing. I, at the time, I'm thinking, this is weird. Like, what a weird thing my body's doing. But I spoke to someone, Lucianne Holmes, for the book, who had this amazing phrase about being touched out, that you, if you mm. have a small baby, they're on your body. I've just written something where I said, if if you're a birth parent, giving birth isn't, it isn't a process of removing a baby from your body. It's just the process of moving a baby from the inside to the outside of your body. They're still on your body all the time. Mm. And so you are touched out. You don't need someone to come and like touch your skin or hair or kiss your face because you're getting that all the time. And so everything has to be renegotiated. The way you talk to each other, what hours of the day you socialise, how you have sex and when and where like what you do as a couple. The first time me and my partner went out after having a baby, (laughs) my mum babysat. We walked to a restaurant. We had a full meal, two glasses of wine, walked home an hour and a half. We were so panicked about being away from our kid. We were so out of practice. It was like being on a date in like fast forward with a 12 year old. We just didn't know what we were doing. It was hilarious. I don't know what it's like for men and I don't know what it's like for people in same sex relationships. But for me, it felt very much like I had gone into a sort of weird domestic Stepford Wives situation. And in that situation, I couldn't help but resent my partner and feel weird about our relationship because he was going out to work and I was staying at home. And I was the primary breadwinner, but still the domestic labour, the unpaid domestic labour fell to me. So why wouldn't you hate someone? My partner, and I would say four of my closest friends are all the only children of single mums. And I think there's something in that relationship that makes for people I love. And I think they are very secure. They're very independent, but they're very like comfortable with being loved. There's loads to it that I think is great. So Mm. I'm not banging a drum, even though, like I say, I wanted to have another baby and I'm in a relationship. I think there's so many different ways to build a family. And the idea that you have to have a relationship in order to have a family is absolutely bollocks and has been proven over and over again to be untrue by design or not like most single parents aren't single parents by choice (laughs) and most people who choose to have kids you know like that is a decision a sort of tangential to or other to their their relationship status that's just something that they want and they want in their body and their mind and in their life yeah I mean I sort of feel like since having Naira like I wanted I wanted to be a mother I didn't know if I necessarily needed to do that for having 
my own child. I knew that I wanted to be a mother. Now that I am a mother, now that I've had a child, I really don't feel like a huge amount of like, oh, I must now go and be in a relationship or I'd like to be in a relationship or whatever. Mm. I'm kind of like, I feel like I've sort of fulfilled the time sensitive thing (laughs) that I wanted to do. And now everything else feels like a lot less pressure. Absolutely. And both of my parents had significant relationships in their 50s and 60s with new people. So I I saw close up the idea that you could have children and then have relationships mm. in that order the, you know it didn't always have to be this very weird prescribed version of it and my god there are so many people having children with fucking dicks because yeah. they they didn't know otherwise or they couldn't find another way to do it or they couldn't afford to do it the other yeah way. it's bloody so expensive it's bloody expensive to do it the other way i was going to say to you about uh, the thing you just said about how your son is like your partner and that might be different to you. It's just quite funny. My daughter came home the other week and she was talking about she wanted to listen to some music because she's two and a half, like she's coming up for three. She's sort of, uh, you know, she you can have pretty good chats with her now. And she's hilarious all the time. And she's like, uh, she wants to listen to some music. And you're like, okay, well, what, you know, because she listens to a lot of music with her dad. And I'm like, okay, well, what music do you want to listen to? You know, like, what, what do you like? And she goes, Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, "Who are you? What where is this? You come where, from? where has this come from? What? <laughs> you have done something that I have also done. You have left London, or well, I'm sort of, mm. half, I'm sort of half and half in London and back okay. in my hometown. But you are like full time back in your hometown now, which I it sounds like sort of similar experience to you against all odds I'm sort of enjoying it actually it's quite nice in a lot of ways and I wasn't really expecting it to be that way yeah there is a kind of like serious point here which is that I think we are simply not supported well enough by the system to do the things that we might have planned to do or wanted to do like stay in London <laughs> for example Absolutely. or or you know other parts of the country etc etc so I wanted to ask you because it you know it is a manifesto this is quite a big question now oh good here we go what's the answer <laughs> great okay I think the housing thing is just like there's no reason why two women who are working should have to leave the city that they were enjoying living in because they have dared to reproduce. Unbelievable. Mm. A lot of, you know, there's been a lot more attention, I think, uh, now in the last probably two years on the injustice of the rental sector and how just wildly un, you know, out of control and un- unregulated that is. My partner grew up in a council flat in central London and he's like absolutely zealous. He's like, we just need council houses. We just need council houses. It's so obvious. If you put money into housing, that is money that you're going to get back for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, as a local authority. It's so simple and it means... That like, yeah, his mum could have a child on her own, work as a nurse, retrain as a teacher, become middle class, like boom, 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 boom. So like in terms of housing, I just think we need to take it out of the hands of private ownership. Possibly less popular, I say in the manifesto, let's just not let anyone have more than one home. (laughs) I don't understand why you need a spare house. And I say this as someone whose mum owns more than one home. And she read the book and she was like, yeah, you're right. You're completely right. It also needs to be said that it didn't always used to be this way. In the 1980s, there's a statistic in the book that I wish I could remember, but I think in, in 1980, the proportion 
of your income that would go towards your rent was something like, even in London, 23%, and now it's more like 38%. So it's just gone, like, even in line with inflation, it's gone completely out of control, the amount of money that we're spending just to live, just to live somewhere, you know, just to have secure housing, or not even particularly secure housing, because you're at the will of your landlord. To answer your question more widely, what's the answer? What do we do? In the manifesto, I think I talk about let's address all the areas. Housing, we just need more affordable housing. Childcare, we need affordable, if not free childcare at the point of use. That would enable everybody to work more, work in a way that's more harmonious, look after their children better, pay their staff better. It's infrastructure. It's so fucking obvious. I can't believe it needs to be said, but it needs to be said apparently every day and people will still choose to argue with you. We need to see the raising of children as the primary necessary industry of a nation. And all the other industries happen as a result of raising children. I'm not saying this is like a weird biological tendency saying like, oh, women have to have eight babies. That's the most important job they can do. But I'm just saying the raising of children, whoever is doing it, that is the single most important industry you can have. And so it needs to be financially remunerated. It needs to come with accommodation. It needs to be recognised socially. It needs to be given the sort of scope in terms of health resources and public consciousness that all those other things have. All the money that goes into defence, all the money that goes into farming, all the money that goes into construction, those things cannot happen unless someone is raising the babies. So let's give the money there first. And then if we have any money left over, you can buy some tanks and you can build some more roads. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there is, I wish I could remember the statistic, but the amount of money lost by not providing this infrastructure is it, like to the economy is fucking like it's it's trillions of of dollars yeah. like globally it's it's a lot of yeah. money it's a, such an insane back to front way of seeing it that that work is work and having children is like a little lifestyle hobby that some people choose to undertake holding the baby is published on march the 2nd what's next or are you just totally focused on on promoting the shit out of this at the moment well i'm gonna be promoting the shit out of this Mm. and then i have just finished another novel which is all about half siblings so that'll be coming out in february 2024 that's the next thing i mean this is quite a rate of well uh... he's at school jen he's at school i cannot tell you what it's like to have a child in a space of learning for free from nine till three every day you get a lot done it's lovely amazing (laughs) standard issue for all women